Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Last week, I preached a message called Hope on the Horizon. It was the second of four Advent-themed messages uh, that I'm bringing this year, and it was about how when Jesus was born, it was a moment of, that was worthy of celebration, and it was celebrated. It was celebrated by the angels, uh, by the shepherds, by the magi, by Simeon, by Anna, and by others. But Jesus still had to grow up. He still had to minister. He still had to die, and he still had to rise from the dead. He hadn't yet done what he came to do. But his very arrival was reason enough for celebration. We live today on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection. In fact, on the other side of the ascension, meaning what? That we have uh, not only the finished work of salvation in our past, but we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, God with us and in us. And so, guess what? We have reason to celebrate too, don't we? Yes. Pastor, we do. (laughs) What I want to talk about today, at least for a while, uh, and I'm not trying to bring us down, I'm just trying to recognize some harsh realities. I want to talk about the difficulty or the potential difficulty of celebrating in the midst of heartache, tragedy, loss, and trials. Celebrating in the darkness. You know how I feel about Christmas. I think you do, and if you don't, it's the most wonderful time of the year. That's the best Andy Williams I can do right there. (laughs) But do you remember a few weeks ago when I was sharing with you in a little greater detail than I have in a while about my, my back episodes when I was going through that back pain, the sciatica issues, and how when I was really down during that second one, which was the protracted one, the one that was taking weeks and weeks and weeks to get better. And I, when I had my breakdown, it wasn't because, oh, the pain is worse than it's ever been before. It wasn't even necessarily because, oh, I've been hurting for so long. A big part of that was because it was ruining the most wonderful time of the year for me. It wasn't just that it was happening, it was when it was happening. How can I celebrate? How can I enjoy this season in the middle of this? And someone, somewhere, even in here, is likely going through something like that. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you got bad news from a doctor, and it's putting it mildly to say you're having a hard time getting into the Christmas spirit. Maybe because of the bad news, and there's plenty of it these days, I don't mean your personal bad news, I mean bad news on the global scale, you find yourself not necessarily depressed, but actually feeling a little guilty for thinking about celebrating when so many things are going wrong and when so many other people are suffering. And we may as well start there. There are a number of threads to pull on today, and uh, this is as good a place to start as any, because if we're not careful, we can find ourselves on a very slippery slope. And this is going to start off sounding like a bit of a non sequitur, so hang in there. It will make sense. 
But did you ever wonder how Satan managed to convince one-third of the angels to follow him in rebellion against God? I mean, if we're right about the origin of demons, and I think we are, then that's what happened. Satan led a third of the heavenly hosts in rebellion against God. Angels who live and operate in the spirit realm, who can see God, were somehow persuaded that they would be better off, that they could do better for themselves than God was doing for them. I read a little blurb recently that said, if Satan could talk the angels out of heaven, he can talk you into hell. And that's the danger of the slippery slope I'm talking about. When people start focusing on all of the evil and the suffering in the world and asking the old question and its parallels, you know, what's the old question, the greatest philosophical challenge to Christianity? If God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil and suffering in the world? He either can't do anything about it or he won't, which makes him not all good or not all powerful. If God really loved me, we can put it personally, would I be suffering like this? If he can do anything, why isn't he doing something? For that matter, would even bad people be suffering like they are? If God is omnipotent and omnibenevolent, if God is love, would he truly let even bad people suffer to the degree that they're suffering around the world? And then there's a crucial and dangerous step. Wouldn't life be easier and perhaps even more pleasant if I weren't complicating it by trying to live up to God's requirements in the middle of all this? Then you start resenting people who, as far as you can tell, aren't struggling like you are. Or maybe you're not suffering badly, but you, uh, maybe you pat yourself on the back for being a little more sensitive to all the pain and suffering in the world, and you begin to develop a disdain for people uh, who can find it in themselves to celebrate at a time like this, to make merry. Because if they were as clear-sighted as you are, they wouldn't dare. As kind of an aside, uh, this is one reason the book of Job is so important. It shows us an upright man who is blessed by God. And when he loses practically everything, all the manifested blessings of God, he maintains his integrity. I mean, sure, he challenges God. What did I do to deserve this? I have an understanding that you are a good God and I'm a good man, and if I'm good, I'll be blessed. And God responds, I'm, I mean, there's an awful lot in the book of Job, but I believe the heart of God's response when he answers with all those questions is, see, Job, there's an awful lot you don't understand. You never understood, but it never bothered you until it affected you. Job refused to abandon his faith. He continued to trust God, to worship God. Why? Just because God is. He's God. And when we do what is right simply because it is the right thing to do, that's living by faith. So back to this. If we think... Well, we think if people are experiencing, if they were experiencing what I'm experiencing, or if they could see the world for the mess that it really is, 
like I can, they would at least question the goodness of God, question the power of God. Uh, I don't know if I have this. Yeah, I'll get that. I'll get to that in a second here. I had a little note here, but I went ahead and developed it later. How about that? The problem with this mindset uh, that develops when you focus almost exclusively on everything that is evil, everything that's wrong with the world, um, you don't just get jaded. It really affects your worldview. Uh, it affects your philosophy, you know, that just to hear a little bit lighter moment in this and, and uh, hope you, you can appreciate this and you're not offended by it, but years ago, I don't know if this is still a character, uh, but there was a character that was developed in a Saturday Night Live skit or a series of Saturday Night Live skits named Debbie Downer. Anybody familiar with Debbie Downer? And Debbie Downer was famous for ruining conversations. And these skits would take place always at times of celebration, like a trip to Disney World with friends and family or Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. And whenever somebody would start some friendly, casual uh, table talk, a conversation, she would immediately respond with a worst-case scenario. You know, gee, it sure is a beautiful sunny day. Yeah, too bad, too bad I'm flirting with a melanoma. The doctor's really concerned about this mole on my arm. Or somebody would say, oh, this steak is delicious. And she'd say, I'm not going to risk it. Ever since they found mad cow disease in the United States, you know it can live in, you, live in your body for years before it starts ravaging your brain. And then the camera would zoom in on her, and she'd go like this, and you'd hear this, wah, wah. And Beth and I still do that today. If we're in a conversation with somebody, and somebody just brings up something negative out of the blue, we just kind of look at each other and go, wah, wah. You know, this trumpet thing, you know. <laughs> You know, they, the Disney World one, it was like, uh, wow, it must be fun to work at a theme park, except you always have to worry about terrorist threats because it's such a great target, you know? So come on! But there are people like that. And that's funny. And it's not fair to people who are genuinely suffering. What I'm trying to address is the phenomenon of making your loss and your pain your identity. Wearing it like a badge and refusing to celebrate, refusing to be happy because you feel like you owe it to the memory of someone or that the world should stop being happy. There was a, it seems like I've referenced this song before, probably along the same theme. Old, uh, I think it was a Leslie Gore tune, Don't They Know It's the End of the World? Was that Leslie Gore? Don't they? How, how can the stars go on shining? Uh, how, can, how, can the world, how can the world go on turning? How can the stars keep on shining? And blah, blah. Don't they know it's the end of the world since you don't love me anymore? You know, it was this whole song about experiencing the loss of a relationship and how can everything else go on like normal? But there are people like that who, and I'm not trying to diminish anybody's sense of loss. Did I tell you? Sorry, I, I'm asking you, and I'm asking you genuinely because I've had this conversation with people, but I don't know if I've shared it from the pulpit about a recent conversation I had with somebody about um, grieving not as the world grieves. Did we talk about that in here? You know, there's, there's, we, are, we are told that we do not grieve as the world grieves, as those who have no hope. And there are, there are ministers who say what that means is the world grieves, but we don't. The world has no hope, so they grieve. We have hope, so we don't grieve. That's, 
And we know better than that. That's never been preached that way here. We grieve. We just don't grieve the same way because we have hope. Right? So I'm not trying to diminish anybody's grief in a moment. I'm saying that's not who you were created to be. You weren't designed to carry that grief and own that grief and let it transform you into grief forever. We grieve differently because we have hope. We are not called to ignore pain. Ignore suffering, ignore bad news, but we are commanded to remember God's goodness and faithfulness through all of it. If you only focus on the bad things and you refuse to be happy, you dishonor God. And you very much dishonor uh, if it's somebody, for instance, if, it, if it's a loss of somebody. And I know many of you have experienced loss of loved ones uh, in recent years, even maybe recent months and days. Uh, but you're dishonoring them too if you let that grief absolutely change you and rob you of joy forever. Those tough questions about, you know, the big questions, if God is all loving, if he's all good and he's all powerful, why is there so much, not just the occasional, you know, innocent people, innocent people suffer and die. How does that happen? There are answers to those questions. We're not going to answer them today. We've looked at them before. We'll look at them again. We're just going somewhere else this morning. But let's recognize that there is a lot of evil and suffering in the world. But on the other hand, what should we expect from a world that has pursued sin with such zeal? That's part of the answer. It doesn't really answer the whole question, but I already said I wasn't going to do that. But Jesus himself acknowledged this tension. In Luke chapter 13, his disciples, uh, they were always looking for reasons for bad things. Remember in John chapter 9, they encountered the blind man, and what did they ask him? Master, who, 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 Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, since he was born blind? They're like, this is something bad, and there has to be a reason for it. It's his sin or it's his parents' sin, and Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents, but the power, that the power of God be made manifest. He didn't say that this man was without sin or his parents were without sin. He's saying there's no direct causal relationship in this case. He says here in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He didn't go into a whole explanation of why bad things happen to good people. He just acknowledged that they did. This was a big question. They were asking him about some horrible thing that had happened to people that they were very familiar with, and they were all apparently very familiar with this story of the tower falling. We don't have any other reference to it, but he was making a reference that they were clearly familiar with. And he said, do you really think those people who died, that God caused that to happen or specifically allowed it to happen to kill them because they were worse than the other people around them who didn't die? No. These things happen. We live in a fallen world, and bad things happen all the time, and you don't want to be in the wrong place with God in your relationship with God when something random like that happens. And I'm not saying that to put fear in you. Again, we live on the other side of the cross. We have authority. We should be speaking 
healing and protection and wisdom and all these things that God has promised. Long life, right? We claim these things, and yet we look around us all the time at our left and our right, and these things do happen. Let's just don't sweat. Well, where was God when that happened to so-and-so? Are you speaking the word over yourself? Are you walking in faith for protection and healing and provision for yourself, for your family? We spent time here many times looking at certain psalms that were written and recited specifically to remind Israel of all the good that God had done in their lives and in their history as a people. And one of the most exciting and challenging things about the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, was that they were commanded not just to make sacrifices for sin, but to gather and celebrate the feasts. That was part of the law. There were seven annual feasts, and three of them were pilgrimage feasts, which meant that at least all the men were required to go to Jerusalem to assemble and observe uh, and properly celebrate these feasts. Those feasts were the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'm not going to do a teaching on them today. I just wanted to point out that each one of these feasts was designed to remind them of a specific moment in their history, praising God for his deliverance, for his provision, for his protection, for other things that he had done at, again, specific moments in their history. Each feast, by the way, also points to Jesus. It's loaded. They are loaded with types and shadows, most famously with Passover. Each household was to choose a lamb without spot, without blemish, kill that lamb, and apply the blood of that innocent lamb to the doorway of their home so that when the angel of, the death, angel of death went through the land, he would pass over those homes that had the blood applied. And that marked the beginning of their deliverance from Egypt and of their identity as a nation of God's people. There are so many types and shadows in the Passover and these other feasts. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, um, it was, uh, it was the high holy day, and it was not a pilgrimage feast, but the imagery, the application of blood to the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. It's unmistakable. You can't not see Jesus in it once you've seen Jesus. And there is absolutely a series of sermons wrapped up in the feasts of Israel. Maybe we'll do that sometime. We will do it sometime. I just don't know how soon. Here's my question. Here's why I bring it up. Do you think everybody... When the Feast of Pentecost rolled around, year after year after year, do you think everybody was in the mood to travel to Jerusalem and celebrate it? Of course not. Do you think no one was inconvenienced? Do you understand that all throughout their history there were people who were losing loved ones and suffering in various ways for all those hundreds of years? You got a family crisis? Celebrate anyway. Child died recently, off to Jerusalem you go. Celebrate anyway. Financial troubles, wouldn't it be irresponsible to take this trip right now? Go. Celebrate anyway. God arranged it this way. Listen, God arranged it this way, not to add undue strain, but to free them to participate in these life-giving ceremonies and celebrations. This is the big trap. On one hand, 
Our circumstances cause us not to feel like celebrating. On the other hand, our sense of responsibilities uh, causes us to question the propriety of celebrating. I don't feel like doing Christmas this year, and I'll get, I know Christmas isn't law, and we'll get to that. I don't feel like doing Passover. I don't feel like doing Pentecost. And wouldn't it be irresponsible? Wouldn't I be abdicating my responsibility to my family since, you know, we're struggling a little bit right now? I don't want to be off celebrating uh, while we just buried uh, Uncle So-and-so or whatever. No, he commanded them to celebrate. How can I celebrate now when I'm mourning or when I'm depressed? Or how dare I celebrate now when so many others are suffering? And God answers this, because I told you to. And I told you to because you need it. It's not a matter of saying, forget your suffering and your grief. I'm God, come worship me. He gave them the feasts for them. His command gives us permission to lay these things aside, at least for a season, to be legitimately preoccupied with his goodness, his blessings, and his faithfulness. And it all prefigures Jesus, who says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You will find rest for your souls. 1 Peter 5 beginning in verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. If the Jews under the law would be faithful to celebrate these feasts, they would find their faith strengthened, their quality of life improved, and their nation blessed. And yet you look, it's like, well, they went into captivity. They lost their land. They lost ten tribes. Why? Because they didn't keep the feasts. That was one of the big, big things. Unfortunately, most of their kings, even the good ones, weren't particularly uh, diligent about enforcing the keeping of these feasts. They went by the wayside for years, for decades, for centuries even. Not only that, but in addition to the seven feasts, there, were, there was the weekly Sabbath. Running behind on bills, need to do some extra work, take the Sabbath off anyway. Honor God, trust Him. But what happened? The Sabbath went by the wayside too, didn't it? And Israel suffered. They suffered for ignoring the Sabbath. They paid the price. And what did Jesus say about the Sabbath? That it was made for man not the other way around. And that he, as the Son of Man, was Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, he could heal. He could do good on the Sabbath. Now, what does this have to do with Christmas? Especially since Christmas is not one of the feasts of Israel. And especially since we're no longer under the law anyway. Well, first, and we've spoken quite a bit about this, even recently, we mentioned this during praise and worship. You've heard it. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you had a bad week. Maybe you're not in the mood to praise and worship. Maybe you feel like it wouldn't be right because you'd be faking it. Maybe you had a legitimately terrible week. And maybe you are right now in the middle of a very difficult season. Praise him anyway. Not because you are carefree, but because he is God. 
And what? Being God, he needs our praise? Come on, uh, set your cares and worries aside because God's been looking forward to this all week. He needs a pick-me-up. No, why? Because it's good for you to put yourself in that posture of recognizing that he is God and is worthy of your praise. Years ago, I've shared this uh, uh, probably a couple times, but there was a, a, a wife of a, of a world-famous pastor uh, who, was, uh, who she made headlines, at least in Christian circles, for saying something like this during the praise and worship service. She was trying to motivate the people uh, to get involved in the praise and worship service. And she said, come on, this time isn't about God, it's about you. And she took a lot of flack for that statement, or something very close to that. But she went on to say, if anyone was paying attention, that we are the ones who benefit from that time of singing to God, honoring him with our worship. She was guilty of stating her case inelegantly, but not much more. The fact is that God does not benefit from our praise and worship. Look at this scripture passage. This is from Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, beginning in verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me until I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. I'm seeing a lot of frowns. Did Jesus really say that? He really did. What's he saying, though, that we have, that nothing we do for God matters? Good night. I just preached a series of messages on being a profitable servant. Do I need to unpreach that? What he's saying here is that God literally gains nothing from our service. We cannot add one thing to God's treasury or to God himself. When we sing his praises... When we worship him, he remains unaltered. He is completely self-sufficient. He needs nothing. There's nothing you and I can do to add one thing, change one thing in any way. But it changes us. C.S. Lewis said that about prayer. He was sharing with uh, uh, some of his fellow scholars who were atheists, and one of them asked him, you know, you're... Your Bible tells us that God is immutable, that he changes not, so why do you bother to pray? And Lewis said, I don't pray because it changes God. I pray because prayer changes me. I do believe it pleases God, but he is unchanging. We are changed. We benefit. We come in here, maybe we don't feel like praising, but if we praise him, we worship him just because he is. Then, at that moment, we can see God entering our circumstances 
and bringing joy into our circumstances, and we truly can lay our burdens down. When it comes to Christmas, we are under no biblical obligation to celebrate it. There is no specific Old Testament feast to tie it to. And Jesus fulfilled the law anyway. For us, it's not as Christians, you must celebrate Christmas and you must celebrate it in such and such a way. But the event we as Christians are celebrating at this time of year really did happen. And it is really worth celebrating. Not because we feel like it, not because everything is right with the world, but because it happened. Another sermon I'm not going to preach today is the one taking on this whole idea about, well, we really shouldn't celebrate Christmas because of its pagan origins. Well, all I'll say in response to that for right now is that Christmas is probably the single best example of a pagan tradition being thoroughly redeemed. They didn't just make up some, uh, some holiday. They didn't just make up some event. You know, I, I, I've written a, an essay that I'll, I, I usually put it out around Halloween, and I didn't this year, uh, talking about the pagan origins of Halloween, the pagan or, origins of Christmas, and what the difference is. Can we Christianize Halloween, and can we Christianize Christmas? Of course, we have successfully, I believe, Christianized Christmas, Halloween's different because they're celebrating something that the Bible makes no reference to at all versus the birth of Christ, which the Bible makes many references to, and they're all glorious. Anyway, what are we celebrating? We are celebrating the entrance of truth, light, and life into a world full of lies, darkness, and death. We celebrate the fulfillment of prophecy, we celebrate the setting into motion, the events, the series of events that would lead to the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ Jesus, which was always God's ultimate plan of redemption. Are you too busy? Is there something you'd rather do? Why don't you set some things aside for a day or a week and focus on the greatness of what Christmas is all about? We're going to hear a song from Roger Benzel here in just a minute. And then he can be making your way up here. Raj, is he up here already? Where is he? Oh, there he is. But more to the point of this message, are you struggling? Are you fighting a battle? And are you sensitive to the plight of your fellow man, your fellow believers even, in Ukraine, in Gaza, in Israel, in China, wherever? There's some bad, bad stuff happening and some bad stuff, it looks like, on the horizon. And there are Christians in the thick of all of it. How is it appropriate to eat, drink, and be merry when so many right here in America, even right here in St. Joseph, are struggling, jobless, or bereaved? Here's what you remember. Jesus stepped out of his home in glory into this messed up, broken world. A world of bondage, pain, loss, 
This was a step down. This was condescension in the purest form of the word. He condescended to lower himself to take the form of man. And he didn't fix the world before he came. He stepped right down into this darkness, into this pain. And I guess that's it right there. Christmas isn't about ignoring our pain or the pain of others. It's about recognizing that Jesus entered this very world of pain to take that pain on himself. And we're going to talk more explicitly about that next week. Right now, let's, let's hear this song.
a song your broken heart has cried. Hope is here, just lift your head, for love has come to find you somewhere in your silent night. Love will find you. Thank you, Roger. Praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. I've got a little, little bit to go, so no need to run. A couple things before I offer you an invitation. One, let me say it again. Jesus stepped out of heaven into this mess. And when he did, the angels gave glory to God. And I hope what you haven't heard is this, because this isn't what God is saying either. He's not saying, get over yourself. Just cheer up. Come on. Shake it off. It's Christmas. You can get back to feeling sorry for yourself after the first of the year. He's not saying that at all. He sent Jesus to be a man in this world to experience all of the heartache that comes with being human. He just didn't have the sin nature. So that God could say, literally, I feel your pain. But God is not in the business of simply commiserating with us. I feel your pain. And I'm going to take your pain. I'm going to take your grief. I'm going to take your loss. I'm going to take your fear. I'm going to take everything that is part of this world because of sin. And I'm going to take it away. But he takes it away like this. Give it to me. You have to cast it over on me. It's harder than it sounds. It's like when Jesus went to the man at the pool. Do you want to be made well? Or is your whole identity wrapped up in being crippled? Because when you receive healing, your whole life changes. Now you're entitled to your grief. But it's not what I made you to do. I didn't make you to grieve. I didn't make you to suffer in, in any of these ways. I'll take it away from you. But when you do... That's no longer your identity. You can't fall back in that. You can't fall back on that anymore and say, well, this happened because of this. No, I took that away. No more excuses. I'm taking that, but I'm not leaving that. I'm not leaving a vacuum there. I'm not leaving a void. I'm filling that with the power of my spirit. If you'll receive it. Look, Christmas isn't about us. Praise and worship is not about us. It's all about him. But when we give ourselves to him in worship and in celebration, he meets us and swallows up our pain, our loss, even our death. 
We celebrate the birth of Christ because that's how God the Father fulfilled his promise to bring a Savior to the world. To the world. He gives Jesus to the world as a gift. Salvation to the world as a gift. But, stand up with me. But, a gift must be received. A gift can be refused. It's a gift that is already purchased. It is under the tree, ready for you to open it. But you have to. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's already bought. You have to receive it. How? How do you receive that gift? If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will receive that gift of salvation. Do you want to give God a gift? Give him your life. Surprise, though. Remember how I said we can't give him anything? We can't add one thing to him? Even when you give your life to him, you have to do it remembering that he already bought you. Another C.S. Lewis line that was so good that a band named themselves after it is when he talks about a father whose children come up to him and they want to borrow uh, six pence so that they can go buy him a Christmas present or a birthday present. So he gives them the money and gladly receives their gift, even though he is, quote, sixpence, none the richer. This is how God is. Everything you, we bring him, we bring him because he gave it to us first. And our very lives, he's the author of our lives. Our very redemption, he's the one who purchased our redemption. But when we yield to that, what, by simply accepting his gift of salvation, he receives us with gladness as a happy father. It was an expensive gift, by the way. You were expensive. It cost nothing less than the blood and life of his son, who he gave to us all these years ago. If you have never made Jesus Christ your Lord, there is no Better. There's never any better time than now. And this is now today. If you've not made that decision, please make it. I'm going to pray a short prayer. And when I'm done praying, they're going to start singing. When they start singing, come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the joy that you have made available to us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us divine permission to celebrate in the midst of our own heartache, in the midst of a dark world, in the midst of everything that's going wrong, you have called us to celebrate the gift of Jesus. Celebrate the new life that you make available through him. Father, I pray for every person in this room, every member of our congregation, even the ones who are unable to be here today, who are going through a time like that, a time that makes it difficult to celebrate where there's pain and loss and, and struggle that are still uh, too fresh, too raw, too real. Uh, 
feels like it's too much to get over to truly enter into the joy of the season. I pray, Lord, that you make yourself known to them in a new way, in a fresh way that surprises them and brings a bright, joyful light into their life and frees them to celebrate your goodness today. And I pray now specifically for anybody in the sound of my voice who has never given their lives to you, never surrendered their lives to you, never gratefully acknowledged the price you paid to save them, and that they would joyfully and eagerly receive that precious gift of eternal life today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.